Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station No Bring change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am STD Noor Last week, exactly a week ago um, A jury ordered Alex Jones To pay $45.2 million To the parents of Jesse Lewis Who is one of the children Killed in uh, the school shooting At Sandy Hook That was just a day after A jury awarded also a $4.1 million To the same parents And uh, this is just one of several pending cases and one might imagine there will be other cases coming and we're here today to talk about Alex Jones, the trial and uh, various related issues with me to discuss that is Nicole Hemmel, she's an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University director of the Rogers Center for the Study of the Presidency, she's author of the forthcoming book Party the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. And thank you very much, Nikki, for joining us today. Appreciate um, that. Um, I want to start by asking something um, different but uh, relevant. We just heard in the news about the attack on uh, Salman Rushdie, which um, I think uh, probably has caused a level of anger and um, disappointment, whatever, in in our hearts. But um, as I think about it, and I, I think about the way the attacker would be discussed in the media, I'm also reminded that on January 6th, a mob built a gallows that was meant for Vice President Mike Pence. So I don't think that um, the the Iranian uh, murderous attacks are very different from American ones. What, what, what do you think? Well, it's certainly a reminder that the image of violent extremism for most people in the United States is still very much related to foreign terrorism has been shaped by really 40 years now of complicated relationships between the United States and Iran and other places in the Middle East. And that is the easy way to talk about foreign extremism, violent extremism. Um, but as we have seen in the recent years in the United States, violent domestic extremism has been much deadlier here in the U.S. and has been in many ways more threatening to our politics and to the future of democracy. And so we haven't necessarily done a great job first of, of focusing on and understanding domestic extremism, um, but also integrating these two types of political extremism and political violence into um, into a cohesive whole. Yeah, and I wonder about the language because that mm-hmm. will be termed terrorism um, as well as anything that comes from, let's say, the Muslim world. Uh, but um, exact thing, exact same things or worse that come from American extremists or, you know, look at Sandy Hook, for example. That's not terrorism mm-hmm. for some reason. Killing 20 kids and, and six adults is just murder or if it's even well, that, it shows, right? Yeah, it shows a real poverty in our imagination when it comes to the word terrorism in particular, because you can't imagine something that terrorizes 
parents and Americans more than the idea that sending your child off to school can end in a horrific massacre like this. Um, and there has been real institutional resistance to understanding whether it's, it's Sandy Hook or um, the massacre in Charleston or the events in Charlottesville five years ago today as as terrorism um, in the during the Obama administration, in the early days of the administration, there was an effort within the Department of Homeland Security to call attention to right-wing extremism and domestic terrorism. And there was immediate pushback from the right, from veterans groups, and that component of DHS that was studying that was dissolved. So there has been a real fight over the past 10, 15 years to really help broaden our understanding of terrorism, because it isn't just limited to um, foreign terrorism. It's something that has been nursed here at home, not just in recent years, but frankly, throughout much of American history. Yeah, that's very really interesting. I didn't know about that effort, let alone the um, the push to um, get back to the old language, the old uh, language which really hides the real nature of what's going on in this country. Right. And if you think about the origins of this in the United States, the way that we get some first terrorism laws aren't against um foreign uh, fighters, but it's against the Ku Klux Klan in the 1870s, and that the federal government is beginning to organize to classify the Klan as a terrorist organization um, and to use the tools of the federal government to stop it from um, the really obscene violence against um Black people and their white supporters in the South. Um, so there is a, a lineage there in the U.S. that we could draw from. But when it comes to terrorism, we tend to have a very shortened uh, image and history of what that means. Huh, that's, that's again very interesting here. We are learning all kinds of things right away on our first few minutes. Uh, tell us a little more about that terrorism um, act against the Ku Klux Klan. I didn't know about that either. It, it was the Ku Klux Klan Act, and it I think it was initiated under um, President Grant. There was a, a brief period from maybe 1867 to around 1873-74, when the federal government really said, look, we just fought a war, and you cannot essentially create slavery in another name that's enforced by um, high levels of violence. Um, you have to treat Black people, freed people as citizens, um, and you have to protect their rights. And if you Southern, white Southerners are not going to do it, then the federal government is going to do it. So the, the federal army basically went from fighting the Civil War to protecting the rights of Black Americans in the South. It was a short-lived period, um, but those Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan laws are actually have proved really important in recent years for dealing with domestic terrorists. Huh. Okay, well, maybe we'll get back to it, but um, let's get back to Alex Jones. So um, mm -hmm. what highlights did you glean from uh, the trial against him? Well, one of the things that was perhaps not surprising but remarkable was the effort by Jones to just do his show from the stand. Here he is under oath. Here he is trying to protect the fortune that he has amassed by spreading conspiracy theories and selling supplements. And he either couldn't help himself or saw it as more advantageous to himself to continue to talk about the globalist, corporatist, elite conspiracy against him to lie under oath um, that he was innocent, even though he'd been found guilty in a default judgment, um, that he was bankrupt, um, that he had that his lawyers had complied um, with uh, um, with all of the judgments. And so there was that I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, conspiracy theories don't do well when they run up against the uh, the mechanisms of the judiciary. But it was also pretty fascinating to watch exactly that process, to watch conspiracy theories run into a judge that just wasn't having it, and to run into the realities of the legal system, because there were these big dramatic moments during the trial when Jones was outed again and again as a fabulist, as a liar, as a conspiracy theorist, um, in a way that had pretty dramatic consequences by the end of the trial. 
I should also say just in terms of what we're gleaning from it, um, it was also heartbreaking and really important to have the parents sit and face Jones and say, I'm real. My child was real. And to be able to testify to um, their experience and to their pain, um, because that's that should be at the forefront of the story. Yeah, and we'll get back to that in a moment. I just want to ask you a couple questions related to what you were just saying. Um, lying under oath, I believe, is a crime, isn't it? Um, it is indeed. <laughs> so what what what's the punishment for lying under throat and uh, uh, for lying under oath? And uh, why what, didn't he get some punishment for that? So the the crime is perjury, and it really depends on whether the court pursues it, um, whether they decide to tack on extra charges. This is actually something we've run into in a lot of cases recently, um, people willing to perjure themselves under oath. Um, so there still could be charges brought against him for perjury. I mean, the trial has just ended. Um, he's facing a number of other trials. Um, so the fact that the judge, you know, even in the midst of the trial says, look, these are two lies that not only you told under oath, but you were explicitly instructed not to tell under oath um, if the court wants to pursue perjury charges, if the if the um, DA wants to, to pursue perjury, perjury charges, he certainly could. Um, now the question is, you know, do they want to do that? Is that how the court wants to spend its time? And the punishment ranges quite a bit. So we'll see what happens. Uh-huh. I see. Okay. And also, um, one thing I w- I've been wondering about is um, what if the judge was one of Trump's appo- appointees, because there are so many of them nowadays, and what they come up with is so in line with uh, with the Trump world. Yes, justice is not actually as blind as we would like, is it? Um, you know, I think that in this case, the law is so clear. Um, and in this case, too, right, that there wasn't a trial as to whether or not Jones was guilty. He didn't put on a defense. And so it was a default judgment against him. This really was just about figuring out what the... Um, what the judgment against him was going to be, how much he was going to have mm. to to pay for it. Um, and so there are very specific rules that govern that. Um, it is possible that a judge could let Jones lie under oath, but the he seemed not to have the most, let's say, competent team uh, on his side, and he was facing down some pretty good lawyers on the other side. So I suspect the jury still would have been able to see through that. But I mean, this is, to your point, a much broader issue in the judiciary, um, that there are a number of judges that have been appointed who have been labeled unqualified uh, by the American Bar Association, and um, who were put in place particularly because they had a specific ideological view of the world. Yeah, and we see the con- We are seeing the consequences nowadays. We sure are. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to the parents. Um, just one pair of the parents of twenty children, who not only lost their children but have suffered in in a terrible way. Right? You send your child to school, and the child gets murdered but also since then have been subject to harassment and death threats and all kinds of just hell because of Alex Jones. I I think it's worth sitting with this because, you know, 10 years ago when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, I remember where I was. I remember the sense of just sheer horror and grief and and the sense that something would surely be done because this was a price that America was not willing to pay in order to have unrestricted access to guns. Of course, we know that the legislative changes didn't happen, but I also think that we, we couldn't have imagined in that moment that somebody would come along to make it even worse because it seemed like it couldn't get any worse. But the idea that these parents would be called liars, would be called crisis actors, would have to face the kinds of 
death threats, would have to constantly move their residents, would never be given the space to even begin the process of healing from that grief to the extent you even can, is um, one of the more horrific things that I could imagine. And that these parents, in the midst of all of that, have still pushed forward in order to get some relief and in order to save the rest of us from the world of conspiracies that Alex Jones spreads um, is a testament to their courage and is a testament to really their strength as well. Mm -hmm. And what will happen now? I understand that um, Texas has a um, a roof on um, how much um, people would have to pay um, if they are found guilty. Um, also, as you said, he has declared bankruptcy, even though I understand he has more than $200 million. Uh, where, where is it going? Right. This is just the middle of the story, not the end of it. I mean, there are a, a lot of things that have to happen. So you're right that right now, Texas caps punitive damages at $750,000 per person. We expect that the lawyers in this case are going to challenge that cap and say, actually, that's not right. The jury should be able to award more. So that's happening. The bankruptcy hearing is happening as well. Um, that hasn't been completed. And then you have a whole other set of people who are in the process of suing Alex Jones for other things. Um, so yes, a forensic accountant has come forward and said that um, Jones and Infowars has something north of 150 to $250 million. Um, it's going to be an extended years-long process to both figure out all of these cases, to figure out where all of that money is, and to try to squeeze some of that money out of Jones. Um, so that is something we will still have to stay tuned for. Well, I guess one comfort is that he's spending a lot of money to his lawyers, and so some of his fortune is being spent. Yeah, although he should probably be spending a little more. I'm not sure he got the uh, the most top shelf lawyers for this one. Yeah, yeah, and and one just wonders. I mean, I'm not sure what you can do with, let's say, just $200 million, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of money, a lot more than any person really needs. And is it worth it to amass and to keep such a fortune knowing that you have destroyed the lives of so many people? What 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 do we know about his personality and and uh, I, what kind of person is it that that is okay with that? A lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how Alex Jones sleeps at night, um, and part of it is that he believes everything he says as soon as he says it. Um, that's a particular type of personality hmm. that we have seen transcended in politics as well in the United States. Um, but he's also somebody who is, as you mentioned, amassing so much money. Infowars is an empire um, that has reshaped not just radio and the internet, but politics as well, um, because so many of those ideas from Infowars we now see in mainstream Republican politics, talks of false flags and crisis actors and pedophile rings have now become very mainstream. So it's not just that Jones is amassing an incredible amount of money, he's amassing an incredible amount of influence. This is somebody who sat down and had an interview with Donald Trump in December 2015. This is somebody who takes credit for a lot of what Donald Trump um, said during the 2016 campaign and sees himself as somebody who is, if not at the center of world events, um, has some influence over them. Um, and so it's that combination, I think, of money and power that he's drawn to. I should also say, like, as far as who Alex Jones himself is, he grew up in a conservative conspiracist household, mm. um, one that was immersed in the John Birch Society, one where conspiratorial and conservative um, media was flowing through the house on a regular basis. 
basis. And so this is something that he grew up on and that he is a continuation of in many ways. Um, so in a way, he, he comes by his dishonesty, honestly, um, because he um, came up through this um, in, in this environment. Uh-huh. Well, my guest is Nicole Hammer. She's an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, director of the Rogers Center for the Study of the Presidency, and also the author of the forthcoming book, Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. And when the book is published, Nikki, we would like to uh, get a copy and, and have you again. The number here is 6082. 2001 extension 9. You can also join us on social media at Ward Talk on Twitter or a public affair on um, Facebook. So, okay, so you explained to us, uh, Nikki, at least to some extent, why he is who he is. He was born into that. He apparently believes his own lies, even if originally he knew um, these were lies. Why does he have so many followers? That, too, is a great question. I mean, there has long been a a ready audience for conspiracy theories in the United States. Um, this is true across the political spectrum, but it has been particularly true of the American right um, over the course of the 20th century. Everything from, um, you, you know, conspiracy tracks about Franklin Roosevelt knowing in advance about Pearl Harbor and letting it happen, anti-fluoridation conspiracy theories and on and on and on. What makes Jones somebody who has such a big audience is not just that he has put forward pretty much any conspiracy theory you can think of. I mean, we've talked about some political ones, but he also talks about lizard people and gay frogs and all kinds of things um, that, and I don't think we should lose kind of the weirdness of the uh, conspiracies that he puts forward, but he was an early innovator when it came to different types of media. He was a big listener to talk radio, but he also got on the internet and on YouTube at a very early stage in his career. And there he was able to build an audience on places like YouTube at a point in time when not a lot of people had really crack that code. Um, and so his ability to take advantage of those media, to build audiences there, to take advantage of the algorithms as they used to be constructed, um, which allowed conspiracy theories to flow a little more freely. I think all of those have played into how he became such an enormous figure in the world of conspiracies. And then he, he reached out and he continued to tie his conspiracies to politics. And that too has been um, a big part in his prominence, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. Although I should say, I mean, he started off in the, the early 1990s talking about uh, the attack on Waco, talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, these were enormous events um, on the far right and on the right wing in the United States. Um, and there were a lot of conspiracy theories circulating around them. So I, I don't want to suggest that politics is new to his conspiracy theories either. Mm -hmm. So so that explains um, his part of why he's so successful. What about, what does it tell us about American culture um, that there are so many people who believe it and who follow it and who agree with it and who are willing. I just uh, read before we got online that um, Infowars sees sales surge since Sandy Hook defamation trial. How How is it that there are so many people, many of whom I assume have kids who go to school and so on, who feel that Alex Jones is right and correct and deserves support. So without psychologizing it too much, there is a real power in believing that you have access to special knowledge. And that is something that Alex Jones puts forward all the time. He's like, they won't let you know this, but I know how things really work. And that idea, especially in a big, confusing world where lots of things are happening that you don't understand or that um, don't quite make sense to you. When somebody comes to you and is entertaining and is 
charismatic and um, is so confident in his ideas, when that person comes forward and says, I have some snake oil to sell you, but this snake oil is actually going to cure your problems. It's going to fix politics. It's going to at least give you a glimpse into why you don't have as much power as you think you should have in this world. Mm. Um, that is an incredibly compelling um, and really addictive um, form of media. And it has found, as you mentioned, just a, a huge audience. Yeah, so I mentioned that to you before we got on the air. Um, so this show has a different host each day, and um, yesterday's show was on somewhat similar um, themes. And uh, one person called and said that he's a scientist that has been um, voting Democratic for 48 years. But when the pandemic started, he had to find truth. And so he turned to um, Tucker Carlson, which is where he found the truth. Again, um, I mean, this, this station is... Um, I mean, I suppose the station doesn't define itself as anything particularly, but I think some of the hosts at least uh, consider themselves progressives. And um, our listeners are mostly of that vein. Why would someone who, to believe that person, right, for 48 years has um, voted Democrats, why would he find his truth with uh, Tucker Carlson, of all people? So I think there's a, a couple of reasons. First, it is worth acknowledging that the the pandemic, along with all of these other crazy political events that were swirling around in that moment, was a very unmooring for some people. And if you were turning to your trusted sources of information and they weren't giving you the answers that you needed or it felt like they didn't know what they were talking about, then you're going to look for other sources of information. I think a lot of people did this during the pandemic. And in the case of Tucker Carlson, it's worth crediting him with the ability to frame everything he's saying as, oh, you have doubts about what you're hearing out there. That's because they're not telling you the truth. And I am. I know how these things actually work. It's actually very similar to how Alex Jones sells his conspiracy theories. Um, but that idea that he's able to speak both to your concerns about the quality of information that you're getting um, and then to offer a kind of salve, to offer a kind of comfort by saying, if you come here, if you listen here, you will have access to the answers. Um, that again is something that people really hold on to, especially in times when things seem to be going a little off kilter. Um, somebody who is secure like Carlson, um, somebody who claims to have the answers can help. Now, there are probably other things going on in that listener's life um, that draws him to somebody like Tucker Carlson. I don't want to suggest that everyone is uh, is vulnerable to that or that the person in question um, didn't have some um, affinities with Carlson already. Um, but that's it's important to understand that Carlson is very good at what he does. Mm -hmm. So... I think that we on this station offer um, information and thinking that is an alternative to the mainstream, that um, we discuss things that um, are not discussed elsewhere, or at least not in the kind of depth and, you know, really looking for what I believe is the truth um, as elsewhere. Why is it that people who come from our vein um, have so much less success than the right? Do you know? Uh, this is <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. And as somebody who has studied conservative media for a long time, this is often where um, a lot of anxieties come from on the left. They're like, we understand that the right is very good at this. Why are we so bad at it? Um, and I don't think that there are necessarily really easy answers. I mean, part of it is historic, um, which, historical, which is to say that um, 
you know, the right has been building up a media infrastructure that floats between the political and the conspiratorial for gosh, at this point, like more than 70 years. That's a pretty big head start. But I also think that the kind of information that liberals and leftists and progressives are, are seeking out um, doesn't isn't necessarily as conspiratorial, although we've definitely seen plenty of left-wing conspiracies, um, but also that um, they're they, there is still more trust of those mainstream media sources. And so I mean, one of the things that the right has done very well is to say all of those other non-conservative sources of media, you can't trust them. You can only trust us. You can only trust um, a source of information once it's passed a certain ideological test. Um, and that then creates a kind of media ecosystem or a media bubble um, that's defined by ideology. There hasn't yet been something quite like that at that scale for progressives. Now, I think that the media criticism among progressives has actually picked up pretty significantly over the past five years or so. Um, and so I do think that that could be changing. But I think that media criticism is actually really important if you want to build a strong ideological media. Mm -hmm. So let me let me posit something to you and see what you think. Um, I think that part of the issue here is that um, <coughs> progressives, the left, um, really encourages individual thinking and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, like for me, it's hard for me to follow. You know, I'm I don't I can't. <laughs> um, Whereas the right, I think a lot of it comes from Christianity and Catholicism, so are habituated to authoritarianism and to um, believing, accepting, trusting that some person who knows the truth really knows the truth, right? I mean, you see parents giving their kids to to molesting priests, even though everybody knows that they're doing it, but because they're the, they speak for God or whatever. Do you think that there's, um, that that is at least a part of um, this divide and, and why um, there is so much success? Because America is, or the United States is really a Christian country. I think that that's, I think there's a, a little something to that. But the thing that I would want to add is that, as, let's say you're listening to somebody like Alex Jones, he sort of invites you into something that feels like critical thinking, mm. right? He says, research it for yourself, look into this. And he draws you down those kind of conspiratorial rabbit holes. There's nobody who does research like a conspiracy theorist. Now, it's not necessarily hemmed in by the, um, dictates of the enlightenment and of reason, um, but it, it does feel a lot like thinking and putting the pieces together and doing the own work, doing the work yourself. And that feels uh, like an important component to remember. And I think that that's true for conservative media more broadly as well, that there is this sense of inter like, like, that when you listen, you're not just a sponge soaking up what the host says, but you're listening to a bunch of different hosts and putting things together for yourself. And it, again, it feels like, and you're constantly being told by the hosts that you are independent thinkers, that you're the people who think for themselves. You're the people who do the research and do the work. Um, so while it may seem like there's a difference, um, it may seem like it, there's just a very clear difference in styles from the outside, from the inside of conservative and conspiratorial media, it feels a lot like critical thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have uh, two callers for you, so let's get to the phone. Uh, hi, Don, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for the program. Very interesting. Um, it, as you said, this is a very complicated issue of conspiracy theories that, that it frustrates and vex me, vexes me, especially when I encounter people who believe in things that would, one would consider conspiracy theories. That said, I probably believe some things that other folks might label conspiracy theories. 
Um, for instance, I remember not that long ago, it was the left who was claiming the voting machines were rigged, and that had a lot of traction on the, the, the what is constitutes left uh, locally. Um, and, of course, that's now shifted more to the, the right as it is. But I just, my main point is that we live in a society where lies and disinformation that come from institutions of power are just part of the, the daily our daily life. I mean, we all know that you can just just anything. The deliberate lies to us to protect power, and so the ground is ex- extraordinarily fertile for people who have very little power in their life. I mean, that uh, basically are serfs in many ways, and we don't like to think that, but um, that would probably frustrate a lot of people if I told them that I consider myself one. So we have a very, uh, the system we have creates very fertile ground for these type of things. And so I guess there's got, yeah. has to be a little bit of compassion and uh, for people who really grab them, uh, conspiracy theories. Um, you know, yeah. as long as they're not, you know, when they start getting into violence and so forth, compassion ebbs certainly. But I just think that's something we need to consider. Yeah, yeah, Dan, really good uh, points. Um, Thank you. Nikki? I I think that's such an important point. Um, First of all, that conspiracy theories are not limited to one ideological faction. They really have been part of of American life um, and wholesale politics um, for a very long time. and that it becomes different when it's picked up by politicians and used disingenuously or pointed towards violence. But it's also important to remember that some conspiracies are real. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the 1960s and 1970s lately. And, you know, in the mid-1970s, uh, the church committee in Congress comes together and it starts to say, actually, you know what the CIA has been doing for the last 20 years? Um, and they they put forward all of this information of things that would have sounded like crackpot conspiracy theories, but were in fact true. And so I think it's especially important to draw a line under the point that Don is making about our institutions should be more worthy of trust and they have an obligation to be more trustworthy and to be more accurate, to admit mistakes. Um, And our government has a responsibility not to be doing conspiratorial things. They should be operating by the law um, and there should be more transparency in government. And when you don't have those things, it really does contribute to an environment of conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for this answer too. Um, We have Gil on the line too. Hi, Gil, you're in the air. Hi, thanks, Esty, and thanks for having this guest. I wanted to go back to the issue that you raised, Esty, about um, the caller on the show yesterday who had switched sides uh, from being a Democrat to becoming a a follower and believer in Tucker Carlson. And um, this is maybe not so much about conspiracies, but about this switching of sides between the right and left, which is not, I think, necessarily that new, because the, the comment made me think about a guy named David Horowitz, who was Mm -hmm. initially very much on the left and was an editor of Ramparts Magazine with um, Robert Shear. I mean, those two guys. And and he made a very radical shift to the right. Uh, He'd initially been, you know, almost champions, championing the Black Panthers, and he'd like turned over completely and uh, became a a strong advocate for very hard right conservative uh, approaches to politics. Um, so I think maybe to, I guess what I'm saying, it's important to remember that it's, it's really hard to understand what's, how what's going on now is happening, but there, it's been going on one way or another for quite a long time. And I guess what your guest just said about the seventies, which is just the same period when, Horowitz was beginning to write 60s and 70s. Um, that, uh, yeah, that it's uh, it's been there for a long time. Yeah, thank you, Nikki. Yeah, I I love this point because this is 
been the case. People, especially people who tend to land um, in fervent political movements, if they do make a switch, they tend to be very fervent converts as well. And this is something we saw um, in the left to right switch uh, at something like National Review, which was the conservative journal founded in the mid 1950s, where there were all of these folks who had been on the far left who suddenly were part of um, the the new conservative movement of the Cold War era. And, you know, other people on the right used to denounce National Review and William F. Buckley, its founder, talking about Buckley and his stable of former communists, because there were so many converts who were part of that movement. And likewise, the, the neoconservatives of the 1960s and 1970s, who started off as people of the left, um, academics and social scientists, who over the course of the 1960s really do move to, uh, to the right. Um, so that kind of political transformation happens a lot more than we think about. And it, it, it isn't just, um, it isn't just taking advantage of uh, the situation. It isn't just opportunistic. Sometimes it really is a, a pretty deep seated change of heart. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you about um, a very recent event since you are following uh, right-wing media, and I'm so grateful to you and others who do it because <laughs> I personally am not able to do that. <laughs> um, how how has the right-wing media responded to the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago? Um, what's going on there? I so can see if from you your face into, that there's a lot. <laughs> if you if you tune into right wing media this past week, this has absolutely been the biggest story. And um, if you did tune in, you would hear that it was the crime of the century, that nothing like this had ever happened before. And because nothing like this had ever happened before, it's not a sign that Donald Trump was a uniquely corrupt or criminal um, occupant of the Oval Office, but that this is the deep state getting its revenge. So it, it has been very cleanly slotted in into a narrative that pre-existed the the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, this idea that Donald Trump is a uniquely persecuted president. Um, In fact, Glenn Beck was saying earlier this week um, that no, no former president, no president has ever been, no person has ever been investigated as much as Donald Trump has been. And the fact that he's not already sitting in prison is evidence that he actually has the cleanest hands yeah. of any politician. Um, that seems on its face not to be true. Um, but that is the kind of spin that you're getting um, across the conservative media sphere with very, very few exceptions. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, last month, uh, Jonathan Swan of Axios reported on a large-scale GOP plan to reshape the federal bureaucracy in a second Trump presidency, uh, reissuing a 2020 executive order called Schedule F with the intent of purging potentially thousands of civil servants and filling career posts with loyalists to him and his America First ideology. Um Do you think that um, Trump might be elected? And if so, what might uh, this country look like? I mean, it's entirely possible that he could be reelected. He still has broad support within the Republican Party in a two-party system. Um, You know, anything's possible once you become the nominee. So, yes, I absolutely think it's possible that he'll be reelected in 2024. And he's really spent the last few years and so have his supporters nursing this idea of all of the missed opportunities of the first term, that because he was under investigation, because there was so much pressure um, around the issue of Russian involvement in the 2016 election, and then Ukraine and the impeachment, and then the second impeachment, that Trump never got an opportunity to really be president. And so when he comes back, it's time to fix all of the mistakes of the first term. And that means not only stacking his administration with loyalists, but doing away, as you were talking about, with civil service protections. Now, civil service protections, um, this idea of having um, nonpartisan folks who staff the federal government, this has been a cornerstone of the federal government since the 1880s. Um, And you know, increasing civil service reforms have been put in place over the decades. So the idea of cleaning out all of these career federal employees and putting in place partisans is, it would be 
one of the most dramatic shifts and one of the biggest overhauls of not just the federal government in U.S. history, but also the idea of what government is and what it should look like. It really is rolling back the clock, not just to like the 1950s, but to the 1870s and 1880s. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. I'm first generation after the Holocaust. I grew up among people with numbers tattooed on their forearms, which if you ask any of these right-wing propagandists, um, didn't actually happen. But uh, I, I guess understandably, um, I have um, a fear, a, a great fear of um, fascism and Nazism taking over again. I uh, happened upon a little meme this morning, uh, dear good Americans, whatever you wish more good Germans were doing in Germany in 1933, you need to be doing that now. I, I do find myself thinking quite a bit about what, um, how to prepare for um, something like a second um, Trump presidency and uh, how to get out of this country and, you know, blah, blah. Um, it's not blah, blah. It's, it's important stuff. But um, what, I, I imagine you probably think about it too at times. I mean, as, as an academic who studies these things, you might be targeted um, during such a time. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts Look, there are very real risks that would come along with a second Trump presidency. We're already seeing wholesale attacks on the electoral process doing being done now, not in a physical attack kind of way that we saw on January 6th, but that's being done through state houses and through legislation and through jurisprudence. Um, and there is a real possibility that if Donald Trump were president president again, we would have a more reactionary, more fascistic government. And it's not even waiting for Donald Trump to take office again. I mean, what we've seen in the past few years, particularly recently with the Dobbs decision, um, women have fewer rights in the United States today. People's freedom of movement is being restricted. Their ability to access healthcare and information is being restricted. We don't have to wait for a second Trump presidency to know what a a more restrictive society looks like and what it looks like to be put in danger by policies and by judicial decisions. And so we're already living it. Um, So the question is, what are we doing now to protect the people who are most harmed by those decisions and by those policies? Um, What can we do to both safeguard elections and to make the affirmative case about democracy and about rights um, and about, um, about freedom and what's worth protecting in the United States. I think it has to be happening both on the procedural level and it has to be happening on the rhetorical level. And if we're not out there making an affirmative case for liberal democracy, then we're not doing enough because we can't assume that everyone agrees on this. We can't assume everybody thinks that free and fair elections are good, um, that a free and fair media is good, that the Full bodily autonomy is good. Um, that is not a shared belief in the United States. It's something that we've seen very clearly in recent years. Um, so we have to be making the case for that in addition um, to the political work on the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the Dobbs decision, and I actually did want to ask you about that. And uh, what is the rhetoric through the years or, or, you know, through the decades, I suppose, that uh, made this very personal decision um, such a hot issue for the right. How, how did that happen? It really was a process because as late as the early 1970s, there were Catholic conservatives who were making the case that abortion should be banned and plenty of other conservatives who were coming back and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't, we're, we don't get the federal government involved in people's medical decisions. What are you talking about? So it, it took a, 
a decade, really, to put together a coalition on the right that really supported this idea that abortion should be illegal in the United States and that there should be a commitment across the board within the Republican Party to ensure that abortion is illegal. Um, and that's something that built throughout the 1980s and 1990s. It was backed by an enormous amount of violence um, against doctors who provided abortion services by women uh, against women who were seeking abortion services. Um, and it crystallized into an article of faith on the right, certainly by the late 1990s and the 2000s. A lot of it has to do with religion. Um, it is a deeply held religious belief, um, and it became a sort of ossified political belief as well, um, because it helped win elections. It turned out to be a powerful constituency um, a powerful constituency that would look overlook just about everything. And we saw that in the election of Donald Trump. Donald Trump was hardly the uh, religious right figure that you would imagine um, evangelical Christians voting for. And yet white evangelicals turned out in mass for Donald Trump. And abortion was at least part of the reason why. Yeah. Well, we have very little time, but I do want to touch at least upon something I think is very important, which is the role of money. So going back to the discussion of, you know, left media versus right media, we don't have much money. I think they have a lot of money. How how does that manifest? Um, so money plays a huge role in all of this. Um, there have been massive donors on the right. There are big donors on the left as well, um, but there is more of an ethos on the left that dark money is bad. Not to say that there isn't dark money on the left, but there is. Uh, it, it does create some friction among progressives to rely on billionaires um, when, as Elizabeth Warren says, every billionaire is a policy problem. Um, so there is a, a kind of ideological friction on relying on that amount of money. But at the same time, it's worth noting that Progressives have been able to raise millions and millions of dollars in recent years from small dollar donors. So it's it's it is a problem that there is so much unaccountable money in politics. There's a big difference between a corporation writing a check for fifty million dollars and a person putting fifty dollars into a campaign um, out of their uh, out of their paycheck. Um, those are very different visions of how a government should work. Um, so. You know, it's a Citizens United was um, a ruling in 2010 that really shattered many Americans' faith in the Supreme Court to the extent that they still had it. Um, and as long as that ruling stands, you're going to have just enormous amounts of unaccountable money in U.S. politics. Yeah. And I have to say, we don't take money from corporations. We take money from, we accept money from uh, local um, stores or organizations, but uh, the majority of our money comes from our listeners. And yes, you're right. I mean, it's $25, $50. Every once in a while, someone donates $300, and that's a, you know, that's huge. And um, yeah, anyway. And that, that kind of investment is very important. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nicole Hammer, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University, Director of the Rogers Center for the Study of the Presidency, author of the forthcoming book, Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. I'm so glad you could join us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And we'll talk again. Bye-bye. And thanks to Richelle and Summer. You all stay tuned for The Funny Boys. I'm STD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye.